you go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And um, in, the, uh, in the bulletin, there's an article that deals a lot with um, the various kinds of what we call gender issues today. That's in the news, you know, people proclaiming themselves to be this gender or that gender. And uh, it's a study. Well, I, actually, it's a, it's a study of studies. The uh, individuals basically did a detailed study of about 500 different studies. And then they glean from that a lot of uh, really important facts and then kind of categorize them, which makes it a lot easier for us to digest. And it's just very interesting because, as we already know, oftentimes when it comes to anything like any kind of moral issue that is covered a great deal in the, in the news, uh, we're not exactly going to be getting all the facts. Uh, a lot of what we're going to get is going to be slanted, um, editorialized, uh, sometimes one way or the other. Um, it, it's... Uh, uh, it's not only those that we think of being liberal that do that kind of thing. But these are very serious issues, um, not just because it is against Scripture, uh, but also because there are a lot of people who are they're really suffering. You know, there are individuals who try to make, you know, want to turn maybe an individual into some kind of a political ad uh, to push their agenda. And some of those individuals, and many others that we don't know about, that are dealing with some of these things are really suffering a great deal. I mean, they're, they're in desperate need of Christ. They have absolutely, they have no clue why they're the way they are. Um, and they're hurting, and they don't have, they have no tools. They have no ability to deal with the mess that's in their life. Uh, and so we need to know these things, not so we can win an argument, um, not so that we can, you know, maybe put someone in their place, but maybe to give us good and better understanding uh, of the kind of hurt and pain uh, that people are experiencing. So I would encourage you to kind of uh, take your time and read through that, and uh, you will see clearly the things that are being given uh, aren't really being spoken about uh, in the way that it's not handled properly, whether it's the news or news programs, whatever. But I think it will help us in praying for others and then also to be able to communicate to them uh, and help maybe them discover what the real need is. Anyway, let's pray, and then uh, we'll get started. Father, again, we thank you so much for your... You're just your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word. Even though, Lord, things aren't always readily apparent, uh, we do need to take the time to study and to think about what your word says and the way things are communicated. Uh, there's just a, an enormous amount of information that's in your word that you have placed there in really a brilliant way to help us, Father, to really grasp and understand uh, the many complex issues that we face helping us to understand the most important questions in life, uh, giving to us, Father, the detailed information that we need to better understand ourselves, to understand people, to understand our culture and society. And, Father, we thank you for that. We pray that you would help us, Father. Give us understanding. Along with that, Father, we pray that you would continue to give to us a heart of compassion and love for others, that we would, that we would seek to understand. And so, Father, as we continue our study through the book of Matthew, we pray that you would... Help us to understand what is written, the way that it's communicated to us, that we may have a better understanding of the life of Christ and, and what he experienced, giving us a better insight into who he was, so that, Father, we may understand you better. So as always, Father, we know that you're present with us because you've promised that you would never leave us alone. We know, Lord, that your word would not return void, that it will accomplish what you seek it to accomplish in our lives. And we know, Father, for those of us who are believers, that 
The goal is for us to become more like your son, Christ. So, Father, as always, we thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 2, I'll just begin by reading verses 19 through 23. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, or Archelaus was uh, reigning over Ju- Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. We know that Herod dies right around 4 B.C. Uh, Herod's kingdom was then divided among three of his sons. Um, well, I guess we could say three of his surviving sons, since he killed quite a few of them. Uh, but uh, Archelaus, the firstborn, was, was called an ethnarch, not really a king. Uh, I'm not sure really what the big difference is, except that he's a ruler, he has power, I guess maybe more like a governor, um, but he wasn't called a king. Antipas and Philip were called tetriarchs. Um, and it was said that after receiving authority over Judea and Samaria, that's what Archelaus was, was in charge of, they said that he was actually worse than his father. Uh, and an example of that was when he succeeded the throne of his father, he then killed 3,000 Jews in the temple compound during Passover. Even though his dad was ruthless, he, he never violated some of these sacred things that the Jews held near and dear to their hearts. Uh, because part of the way that Rome would look at you when it came to how you controlled your territory uh, was the way you did that. And if you were killing, let's say, 3,000 people, uh, Rome saw that as you killing 3,000 taxpayers. Uh, and that's just not, you know, that's not a good thing. Uh, they would not consider that to be successful. They want to know what's wrong, what's going on. But that's what Archelaus did. Um, and basically by 6 AD, Rome had had enough of him and they had him removed. So that information, though, helps us to understand verse 22. So when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father, that's why he was afraid to go there. He heard what this man was like and that he was worse than Herod. And at least as far as Joseph is concerned, Herod was the one trying to kill his son. And now there's a guy who's worse than he is who's ruling. And so as a result of that, he then goes uh, another way and moves into the area of Galilee. And what that just simply shows us, that's that it's a good example of what we call God's providence. When we speak of God being sovereign, we know that that as God rules, we know that God rules, we would say directly and indirectly, that God rules by direct intervention. And there are are times that God uses, I guess for lack of a better way to put it, this is used a lot in, in various theology books, that God works through secondary means. So God could have told Joseph, just move to Galilee. Didn't tell him that. He said, you can go back now. He said, Herod's no longer there. He's dead. But then through secondary means, because this son and news traveling about how much worse he is, Joseph then decided he was going to move to Galilee, which is exactly what God wanted. And so God is in charge. God wasn't, you know, freaked out by all of this. Everything's going according to the way uh, that God desired it to go. So again, Joseph is is, uh, warned by God in a dream. He turned aside to the region of Galilee. Joseph relocated to Nazareth in Galilee, which was ruled by Herod Antipas instead of Bethlehem. Uh, again, that's important. Uh, what's important about that is uh, being from Nazareth, he was stigmatized uh, or stigmatized Jesus for his entire life on earth. 
So throughout the life of Jesus, we know that Jesus was, we know that he was poor, we know that he was hated, um, but it, it, it wasn't just that he was hated because individuals didn't like what he was saying or the way he was saying it. It goes all the way back to where he was from. He was despised because he was from this area. Uh, when it comes to um, this area, the Jews of Judea, they had a sense of disdain for Galilee. Galileans were considered to be materialistic as opposed to being spiritually minded. And they were also considered to be ignorant of spiritual matters. In fact, there was a saying that was used by rabbis, which basically stated that if you wanted to get rich, then go north to Galilee. But if you were interested in obtaining divine and spiritual wisdom, then go south. So it's clearly, you know, you can see what, what, they're, trying to, uh, what they're trying to say there. And the reason why you would go south is be, uh, to, to get divine spiritual wisdom is because that's where the rabbinic schools were and where the rabbinic academies were. And so that was just the general view that people had when it came to Galilee. There's an interesting side note. Uh, let me just read to you from John chapter 7. I'll read verses 47 through 52. And it reads this way. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. That was a common saying, except they were blinded by their disdain because Hosea, Jonah, Elisha all came out of Galilee. So they make that statement, but it was untrue. If you went any even further than that, the Judeans looked down uh, on the Galileans, and then the Galileans looked down on those from Nazareth. Uh, and the reason for that was Nazareth was home to a Roman garrison. Uh, so the, jo- the, the, Jews, so the Jews that were living there were viewed as traitors. Uh, um, so just being from Nazareth, from in Galilee, made Jesus a despised and rejected individual. And once again, part of the importance of that is we often will talk about or we'll read about, we'll hear about how Jesus can so easily identify with the downtrodden. He experienced on a regular basis this, this disdain that people had for him before he did anything. Uh, he experienced that kind of prejudice uh, that people talk about. So he was very familiar, as the scriptures say, with the kinds of suffering that human beings go through. He understood what rejection was. He understood what it meant to be treated unfairly. That wasn't just something that happened when he was being crucified. It happened from the very beginning of his ministry, even before he ever went on his ministry. He would have been viewed this way by others. How his family would have been treated, uh, even when they traveled to, to Jerusalem for Passover for the many years before he became uh, 12 years of age and we begin to hear about him. We don't know, but they probably, those from Nazareth and those from Galilee, kind of stuck together uh, because they would have looked down, would have been looked down on by others. And so we can kind of fill in the blanks a little bit more about the kinds of things that Jesus would have experienced. So as you move on to Matthew in chapter 3, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard this before. John was not a Southern Baptist or a Northern Baptist or an American Baptist. Uh, that really should be a verb. It should be John the Baptizer. Uh, is, is just the best way, I think, to, uh, to refer to him. I try to do that myself often, uh, just because you'd be surprised how many people think that somehow he was a Baptist um, in that sense. Um, and 
So he was, I guess you could say in one sense he really was because of how he baptized, but we won't get into all that. Uh, But anyway, uh, so again in those days, John, John the baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So I want to kind of spend a little bit of time on this description of John uh, because I think it's important for us to understand some things theologically as well as some things historically that are going on at this time and in his life and then eventually the life of Jesus. Again, it says, in those days, John the baptizer came preaching in the wilderness, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the word repent is an important word. Christians use that word a great deal. It does not mean to feel sorry for your sin, but rather to change your mind. Now, that's a basic understanding of the word. There's much more implied by that. In other words, so when we talk about someone changing their mind, what would that mean? What does that look like? But at least we need to begin with that, that that is the basic understanding of the word repent. It was a change, it was where you would change your mind from one thing to another or from untruth to truth. Uh, Daryl Bach says this, this idea speaks of a reorientation of one's perspective from sin to God. Because remember that when we speak of repent as believers, what we're talking about is the issue of sin and becoming rightly related to God. So this is, it's a big thing, not some small thing that we're talking about. Arnold Frutenbaum says this, Repentance is the key message of John the baptizer. The motivation for repenting are God's arrival and the possibility of God's wrath. The product of repentance is a changed life. So the repenting person was once preoccupied with self. Now the concern is for others. And he lives responsibly before a just God by sharing his possessions and treating others with respect. Now let me just kind of throw this out again because over the past um, 30 years now, I think, and I might be off a little bit, there's been some debate within Christianity about repent. This is very unfortunate. And there's been a group that, that came along and began to really downplay repentance when it came to salvation. Their main argument, and I'm sure there are others who would say that I'm botching it and they're because they're on the other side, but the main point seems to be that they view repentance as a work. That somehow we are saying that it's a, when I say we, I'm at least including myself, that we're saying that it's a precondition for salvation. That the individual needs to repent of their sin, turn their life around, and then come to Christ. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what we mean when we say that. So because they are saying, or they are addressing it that way, or defining it that way, they then minimize or even eliminate the idea of repentance. They don't talk about it and say that, well, you just need to believe in Christ. And, and so there's a, there's a problem with that. Remember again, even though salvation is, it's simple. It's not a simplistic thing. We're talking about the salvation of someone who's spiritually dead and is now spiritually alive. There's a lot that's going on in salvation. And so I, I know we have this desire at times to kind of shrink things down to the easiest form possible. But sometimes with certain subjects, subjects when you do that, you begin to eliminate important truths. 
And we, and we want to make sure we don't eliminate those important truths. So repentance really is a very important thing. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But let me go on to the rest of what it says about John. Again, his message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John the baptizer's message was centered then around the kingdom. Their repentance was to prepare them for the coming of that kingdom. So there was a repentance of sin that John was preaching. Uh, I guess the easy way to put this is uh, we know that sin can blind us to many things. It can blind us to how sinful we are. Uh, Our sin may blind us to other sins that we commit. Uh, Sin can also blind us to spiritual truth. Uh, As a result of that, we're not in a position to understand what's being said, understand what we're reading about when it comes to the Bible. Sin has that effect on us as individuals. So the idea for them is they needed to repent of their sinful ways so they then could be, their hearts could be prepared so that they would then identify or be able to identify and accept who the coming Messiah was. That's what John's getting at. And sin would definitely stand in the way. We see this most graphically in the lives of many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees when Jesus was not what they thought he should be, one of them. And so as a result, because their love for power, their love for money, they did not hear accurately what Jesus was saying. Because we tend to do this all the time. We're human beings. When, we, when you engage in any kind of a conversation or when you just listen to someone, even though you may not be aware of it, we're always interpreting everything that's being said. And and so it's difficult for us to to try to be objective and really hear what's being said. And then also, because we we do tend to at times communicate uh, maybe inaccurately, to be able to to accurately understand what a person's position is, their real position. What are they really trying to communicate? Usually with individuals that we know really well, we're we're maybe even able to be an interpreter for someone else. You know, someone, let's say you have a friend, they may say something, it sounds pretty harsh, and you may immediately interject because you see someone's offended and say, well, that's not really what he means, he means this, and then you explain it for them. So, so when it comes to this whole thing here, um, uh, John is, is trying to get them to prepare for the coming of the kingdom, the announcement of who the Messiah is. So what's interesting in all of this is that John, he doesn't explain the nature of the kingdom that he was proclaiming. It seems that he expected his audience to know what he was talking about. Again, Arnold Frutenbaum says this, the the Jewish audience of his day would automatically have understood him to be speaking of the Messianic kingdom, described in great detail in their scriptures, which is our Old Testament, by the prophets. If John had proclaimed any other kingdom, it would have been contrary to the Jewish context and mindset of the day. In fact, uh, another uh, individual says this, neither John nor Jesus ever explained the kingdom they were talking about uh, was anything other than what was already known from the Old Testament. The Old Testament requires this kingdom to be earthly and messianic, not some nebulous spiritual kingdom of God's rule in one's heart. So turn to Luke 3 for a moment. I want want you to look at two, um, two passages or two verses as we kind of develop a little more the repentance and his preaching and what's going on here. So Luke chapter 3 and verse 3, speaking of John the baptizer, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then in our text in verse 5 of chapter 3, 
It says, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So the point that I want to make at this juncture is that those being baptized by John were making a commitment that they would accept whomever John identified as the Messiah. Because this is not a baptism where they are declaring their faith in God for salvation. These individuals are going out and listening to the one that we know is the one who's preparing the way. Preparing the way for who? Preparing the way for the Messiah. He was the one who was announcing that the Messiah was coming. And they had to be prepared. Again, this preparedness was uh, to be able to receive, really by faith, to trust in whoever God's Messiah is. Because, these, because for most of these individuals, maybe for many, these individuals were not looking for the kind of Messiah that Jesus was sending. Remember, we, we've talked before about there were many different groups who had different ideas as to what the Messiah was going to be like. But the idea that the Messiah was going to come and deal with the sin issue... Or, and we, I would say it this way, deal with the sin issue first. A lot of them weren't, didn't recognize that. Some did, but a lot of them weren't, weren't ready for that. They weren't ready to receive that spiritually. All they were caught up with is, we need to be free from Rome. We need to be delivered from this. The Old Testament speaks of, of you know, Israel being, being the center politically uh, of the known world, and that's what they're waiting for. And we know from hindsight that God's basically saying, uh, no. The most important problem and the most pressing problem is the fact that you're separated from God and it's your sin. And so that's what John is doing. That's the essence then uh, of his message. So by believing John's message and repenting, they receive remission of sins. So later in the Gospels, when those who had been baptized by John encountered Jesus, they did believe in him. John had been declaring this message for about six months before he declared Jesus to be the Messiah. A great number of Jews from outside the country were baptized by John, and then they would return home. And actually, we have an event in the Bible that shows us a group of people like this uh, several years later. So turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Now I'll begin reading in verse 1. We meet a group of individuals who had met John the baptizer who had confessed their sins and received baptism from John the baptizer. So in Acts 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Remember the word Christ is a Greek form, uh, is a Greek word that, which means the anointed one. It's a, the Greek form of Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word which means the anointed one. So he says again that they received a, a baptism of repentance, saying that they should believe on him who would come after him. That's after John the baptizer. And now Paul identifies who that is. That's Christ Jesus. Well, what did they do? When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. 
So again, Paul runs into a body of Jews who have been baptized by John. So when he says here that he came across some disciples, so we have some men who, who they believed the message of John. They believed what he was saying, that Messiah was coming. They were going to believe in him. They confessed their sins. Uh, what they did after that, they went back to wherever they lived. They were outside of Israel, and they would have continued to have read the Old Testament. They probably would have followed all of the customs in Judaism. They didn't stop being Jews, but they, but they had this understanding that the Messiah was going to be identified I guess they would be thinking in their lifetime, and whoever that was, they were going to believe. They were going to believe in who that was. So this is the group that Paul runs into. Uh, So they had not heard who the Messiah was, so Paul tells them that it was Jesus. And so basically what they did was they kept their baptismal commitment, is the best way to say it, and they accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and then they were baptized again into believer's baptism. Right, so, that, so before, they were baptized by John the baptizer. And then when they heard about Jesus, they were baptized in his name. They were identifying. Uh, it was a public way of saying that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. And they believed that. And we know they became believers because of what it says afterwards. Paul laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit in spoken tongues. You didn't receive the Holy Spirit if you were a non-believer. So these individuals became believers at this point in time. Daryl Bach again points this out. He says, John's baptism is a baptism of promise that looks to the greater baptism of the Spirit. It points forward to the cleansing that comes to those who respond to Messiah's offer with faith. In short, it was a step on the way to the promised one's forgiveness. The repentance in view here will not only make one alter the way one lives, but also will cause one to see the mightier one to come. As the promise of God, to submit to this baptism is to confess one's commitment to this perspective. I believe that when it comes to uh, salvation, that uh, God is doing a work in your heart. And I would say it this way, that before you're converted to Christ, you are regenerated. And as you are regenerated, then the natural thing for you to do is to believe in Christ. Why? Because you recognize the blinders have been taken off your eyes and you recognize who the Messiah is or you recognize who the Savior is. And so you immediately what? You believe in him. You believe in what it says about him. You believe in what he did. Uh, and you will be one, you'll be the one who's confessing your sins. In fact, I believe that when it comes to repentance, back to that discussion before about those who try to diminish repentance and say that, it's a, it's a pre-work, a pre-salvific work the individual does. I would say that's incorrect. It's, it's basically simultaneous. The one who is repenting is the one who is believing in Christ. So it's not where there's a repentance here on Monday, and then on Friday you've proven yourself that you really did repent, and now you become... No, it all happens together. Because the only, who, who is it who wants to repent? We're the one who believes in Christ. That's the one who recognizes the sin in their life. So there's a lot of things that are going on in our heart when we come to Christ. And, it's, and, and, and the evidence of the work of the Spirit, I believe, is the desire and the repenting uh, of sins and the believing on Christ and, and, and that conversion that we see that takes place because of the work of God in the heart of the individual in regenerating their heart. Now when you go back to uh, Matthew 3 again, he quotes from the book of Isaiah And it reads, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But when you read that, a lot of times the way we think about it is, we think of it in this term. We think of the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and then there's the message. But 
that's not quite the best way to read that. Uh, the best way to read that is this. The voice of someone crying out, In the desert prepare the way of Adonai, make straight paths for him. In the New American Standard, if you look at Isaiah 40, verse 3, which is where he's quoting from, it reads this way. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So it's not the voice of one in the wilderness who's crying out. You just have the voice of one crying. In the wilderness you make straight. Now this has allusion to, and if you read any, any book, any commentary on Isaiah or on Matthew, they're going to pretty much say the same thing about this. That the idea is if you knew of a visiting dignitary uh, to, your, to your capital city, that what you would do is you would send out a work crew, or maybe at least give an order for several work crews, to uh, not make the roads in the city ready. They're already ready. They're taken care of all the time. The idea was to go out into the desert, to the places outside of the city, and make those roads as straight as possible, fill in the potholes. Uh, if they can shave off some of the hills to make, to make this as, as, a, as easy as, as a path as possible for this visiting dignitary to come. Some have made uh, this uh, analogy with this, that the idea here is that um, the, the, you know, out in the wilderness, prepare the way. The idea is that you're outside of salvation, and the idea is having a heart that's prepared to receive uh, the coming of, of, of God's um, anointed one, which is Christ. And so that was John's message. John's message of repentance is his preparation for the way of Christ. And again, as I mentioned, it's the image of uh, basically of road building. So repentance then, when it comes to the idea of repentance and the way that we should think about repentance, repentance is essential to having a relationship with Jesus Christ because he is the Savior from sin. But again, remember, it's not, it's not a pre-salvific work. It's, it's really more simultaneous. The one who is believing in Christ. In fact, normally, like I say, when we present the gospel to an individual and we get to the point where we ask them if, if they want to believe or if they do believe, uh, in that conversation, there, there's this idea that that person needs to repent. They need to turn away from their sin and turn to Christ. They need to change their mind about who Christ is and believe that Christ is the Messiah. There's been a few books written on this controversy um, going all the way back to, I think, the 80s. Uh, where one of the individuals wrote basically that uh, because the word repent only means to change your mind, and I think that's where they messed up, is they say, well, it only means to change your mind. Then instead of using, using what we would call a working or practical definition, they kept to that narrow definition and said then that repentance was unnecessary. And I, I just think you've gone too far when you've said that. Uh, and I think that uh, as a result of the confusion... We, we do live in a time where there does seem to be, there's, there's many reasons for this, that's not the only reason, but I think it's a major reason why we see a large number of individuals who it appears they've become Christians. And, I, and, I, and I'll emphasize it appears. We can't always know. We have to be careful when it comes to judging another's salvation. But I think oftentimes it is much more clear than maybe we want to make it out to be. When an individual supposedly, what we call, they pray the prayer, and they believe in Christ, and then, you know, within a matter of, of months or years, there's just, there's no interest in spiritual things. There's no interest in God's church. There's no interest in the Bible. There's no desire to change. 
And when that continues on, that person does not know Christ because the evidence or the outworking of an individual who's repented and come to Christ is going to be some degree of that. You know, I know it's different. You know, we always talk about how it's different for different people. We're not trying to say that there's a checklist of 20 and if we can at least check off 12 that they're saved. We're not saying that. But there is in general this idea that an individual is going to become different. And some people that you will see drastic changes because maybe they were involved in open drastic sins. In the lives of other individuals, it may not be as obvious. However, what is often true is whether the individual's sins are obvious or not obvious, they're obvious to that person. And many times they'll say, well, in fact, some people say, well, I just, you know, I, I, you know I've heard you say that you were just really in sin and I, I never knew you to be a sinner. And they, they may tell you, oh, yeah. I, 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 I harbored a grudge against these kinds of people and they kind of go through that thing, those inward sins that we were unaware of or that we couldn't see. And they're very aware of the changes in their lives. So repentance is, is a very important thing uh, when it comes to salvation. And we just need to be aware that there are individuals who they sound, it, sounds, it can sound really good, it can sound spiritual, um, and it can kind of, I guess you would say, pull the wool over our eyes. And, and begin to move in a direction where we take away this idea of repentance. And it's still out there. Uh, I, I don't know how big the movement is. I, I don't know if you call it a movement. But there are still those who do emphasize that, where they emphasize the de-emphasis of repentance. And uh, so we just need to be very aware of that. So again, repentance is essential to having a relationship with Christ because he is the Savior from sin. Uh, I do believe that many people seek to come to Jesus and they cling to their sins at the same time. And that just isn't possible. So let me give you kind of an example of that. So when I was a chaplain of the jail, sometimes you get some kind of unique questions because individuals at times aren't really afraid to kind of voice what they're thinking. So there was a guy that uh, had been in the dorm where I was teaching for several months. And so he asked me this question. He said, I've kind of figured out that that God thinks it's a sin, me living with my girlfriend. We're not married. I said, yeah. He said, well, I want to become a Christian, but I'm not going to stop doing that. So I told him, well, then you can't become a Christian. And he said, wait a minute. I heard you say that there's no preconditions. I go, there's not. And there definitely isn't a precondition, I'm going to keep sinning. When I come to Christ, I said, you are establishing a standard and you're basically saying God's going to be, God's not okay with that. What I will say is this. I would never ask an individual to stop living with their girlfriend when they become, before they become a Christian. When they do become a Christian and God begins to change their heart, they're going to want to do that. Now, there's no time frame. So now I'm not saying they can do that for years. Uh, but, but I would not make that the, a first issue thing. Like, well, now that you're saved, it's been five minutes, you need to move out of your girlfriend's house. But I have seen several individuals who, within a matter of weeks or months, even on their own, come to this understanding, a realization that I believe has been re- revealed to them by God through just their reading of the Word of God, that they're living in sin and they need to correct the situation. And they want to. They're not looking for ways, they're not looking for ways to keep that going. In fact, a lot of times, the only ones who are looking for ways to keep that going are the ones who are in church who are doing that. But the ones who are in jail, who become believers, recognize sin is sin. And I even had one guy tell me that he was really feeling bad. He thought, he says, 
He says that he was worried that God was going to take his salvation back. And I said, why would you think that? He says, well, my girlfriend and I are living together. She has no family here. I have no family here. I have nowhere to go. I'm getting out next week. And I, he goes, what, what do I do? And so uh, I said, well, let's pray about it. So we prayed. Next day, I said, you got a car? He said, yeah. I said, well, you can at least begin by sleeping there. <laughs> and he said, wow, that's going to be really uncomfortable. I said, well, yeah, it is. I said, but remember, if you seek to honor God, he'll honor you. I said, so we need to pray for your girlfriend's salvation, and then you guys need to get married soon. I said, but I, said, I, said, I guess you can sleep on the street if you want to, but I'd rather sleep in a car. And I said, if we can figure out another solution to this, then terrific, but I don't know of any other. The next day, he came back. He said, you know what? I don't know why I was trying to argue with you. I'm a Christian. I need to do the right thing no matter what, and I need to trust God. I go, yes, you do. And so we, we began to pray for his uh, girlfriend and for her salvation. And uh, I was trying to figure out, you know, I was trying to, you know, as I talked to him about this, I said, man, I'd like to work out a way maybe I can meet her. I can present the gospel. I said, I'd like for you to present what you know about the gospel and how it's changed your life, trying to figure out how we're going to do this. And uh, we, we spent a lot of time talking about that. And so the day before he got out, he said, uh, he said, Chaplain Bob, you're not going to believe this. I go, what? He goes, we do not have to worry about trying to figure out how we're going to talk to my girlfriend about Christ. And so I'm waiting for him to tell me that, you no, know, he's already talked to her about it and she's wide open to it. We're going to meet the next day. And I said, yeah, I said, really? I said, I said, so we're getting together? He goes, no, she got saved last night. And what happened was that she had run into somebody on the street, and this individual kind of struck up a conversation, bought her some coffee, and she ended up talking to this individual for five hours and ended up becoming a believer. And when he called her, I think that morning, she said, I got really bad news for you. And he said, what? He says, when you get out, you can't come home. And he said, why? She goes, well, I'm a Christian now. And, and I know you say you're a Christian. We can't, we can't sleep together until we're married. And so he slept in his car for a couple of weeks, and uh, they got married. Uh, they live in, I think, Ohio now, and they're doing really well. But the point is, is that so is repentance and all these, it's not a prerequisite, but it's, it, it kind of comes, it's, it's so intertwined together. We want to make sure that we're not trying to separate those things because somehow, you know, we become over- I guess you would say analytical or digitalized. You know, kind of like now it used to be that when you ask somebody what time it was, well, it's a quarter to three. Everybody knew what that was. Now you don't hear that too much from anybody. You know, what time is it? You know, well, it's a 2.47, right? Or it's 2.43. You know, we're just, we're just used to doing that. And so we, we approach these things sometimes this way, and it can get us into trouble. So again, this doesn't mean that we must become sinlessly perfect before we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. What it does mean is that we, that we must confess our sin. We must recognize that our sin has made the death of Christ on the cross necessary. And we need to cease clinging to our sin. We need to change our mind about it and to turn from it. So Isaiah was speaking prophetically of how God was going to one day cause his exiled people, the Jews, to return to the land. God was going to come and deliver them. And he calls his people to prepare the way, to make the road straight, to fill in the potholes, as it were, to straighten out the rough places. It's a picture of people cleaning up their act, uh, preparing their hearts and lives for God's grace to be poured out on them. So here, Matthew tells us that John was that voice. 
He was the voice who was crying out to them, saying, In the wilderness, make the way. He came crying out to the people that their Redeemer was coming, and that they should, re- and they should prepare the way by what? Repenting of their sins. So I do have to ask you a question. Did you make that sort of preparation in your heart when you came to Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Because there are some who say, wow, I didn't do that. Some may have done that afterwards, because, and I'm not into all the timing of how things are, because sometimes we learn things later. But, there, but one of the common traits that we as believers have is that at some point around our conversion, we were repenting, and we now have a life of repenting of sin. That we have, that's what we, in general, we, we should at least be able to say that. And if you are not an individual who is repenting of your sin, if you've not repented of your sin and changed your mind about your sin, if you are maybe in some way clinging to certain sins, then you may not know Christ. In fact, I would say you probably do not know Christ. Many, many people claim Jesus as their own. But the fact is that they have never really made the necessary preparation by repenting of their sin. Many people who claim Jesus as their Lord actually deny his lordship over their lives by the fact that they continue to embrace the very sins that he died to save them from. And so that's why we need to examine our hearts, examine our lives, to make sure that there's not those things that you know, maybe we're not too strong on or we're trying to excuse when it comes to our sin that we're clinging to. We realize that God desires that we pursue holiness. It was a holy God who sent his holy son to live a life of holiness. And then God placed on his holy son all of the disgusting, despicable, horrific sins that we committed and placed them on Jesus. And then he treated Jesus as if Jesus had committed the sins that we committed. And he poured his wrath out on his son, who was being our substitute, who took, who willfully took our punishment, our full punishment, so that we then could stand before God, declared to be justified, because we would then be dressed in the righteousness of Christ with our sins already paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is the message of hope that we bring to everyone. That's the message of hope that we believe in. So how then can we say that we believe in that when we're holding on to our sin instead of repenting of our sin? And so we go back then to the simple message of John, where he said to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in whatever way you believe that, what we know is at least when it comes to our own demise, that day is coming. We don't know when that day is coming. But the message that we give to everyone is to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace and your kindness and your love and for the consistency of the message of your word from Genesis to Revelation. And Father, we know from reading the Bible that all men are born separated from you. That all men are born with a natural desire, a natural bent to commit sin. In fact, we know, Lord, that all men that are born not only have a natural desire to sin, they do sin. And we have sinned greatly. We have sinned numerous times. We at times have sinned horrifically uh, by our action. And maybe all of us have sinned horrifically in our minds. And Father, we are so grateful that Christ took our punishment. Father, we ask that you would help us to be individuals who have a keen interest, a strong desire to repent. Even though, Father, we know that it may seem that we are repenting often because we become aware of our sinful tendencies as believers. 
We pray, Lord, that we would recognize that 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 is your desire, that we come and that we repent. And that as we repent, that it's your desire to help us. We know, Lord, already that the Bible tells us that you will forgive us. That, Father, our relationship with you is not going to be somehow detached or we're not going to become unhooked from you because of our sin. That, Lord, it's the right thing for you to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to love holiness as much as you do. Help us, Father, to hate sin as much as you do. Help us, Father, to realize that in taking on that that, uh, perspective, that our joy will increase greatly. Our sense of peace will be multiplied in our lives. And that, Father, we'll be able to enjoy the wonderful life that you've given to us. And we will be placed in a position to be used by you to encourage others and to help others, both those who are lost and do not know Christ and those who do know Christ. So, Father, again, we thank you for your incredible patience with us. Thank you, Father, for your clear and consistent message. Thank you, Father, for the gift of Christ and for the gift of salvation. We do ask these things in his name. Amen.